So one of the things you'll experience if you were to go to the airport is oftentimes my experience flying is you're sort of like an, an ant on the ground where you're, you're kind of making your way through security, you're going to your gate. Um, and this is especially the case if you're at a big airport like O'Hare where you gotta take the trains to different places. And if you're in the, if you're in the on the runway, um, you kind of have to wait for your turn in order to take off. Or if once you're in the air, oftentimes before you land at the, at the arrival airport, you're circling the runway. And it can kind of feel like from that ant's perspective, from that small person's perspective, one piece of the puzzle, like what's, what's going on? If you've ever sat on a runway and you had to sit there for like 30 minutes, or when you arrive and you have to sit there for 30 minutes before you can unload, you're like, what's... What on earth is happening here? But there's a part of the airport in which everything makes sense, and that is air traffic control, the tower, one of the most stressful jobs, apparently. And this is sort of a place where you get a bird's eye view. You can see everything that's happening in the airport. You can see the planes that are coming in and going out, and you, give, you issue from there commands that keep everything in order in which all those otherwise puzzling questions get answered. And as Dan pointed out last week, when we come into the throne room of heaven in chapter 4, this is sort of like uh, mission control. This is like the air traffic control tower. This is the center of the universe from which God reigns and out of which he sends his emissaries, his angels to do his bidding, and his will is executed. And we need this perspective that Revelation offers us, because we live in a down-here sort of perspective where we see things as they simply appear to us, and we oftentimes need to be reminded of the reality that is actually truer than what we see with our eyes. The reality that is heaven's perspective, that's one of the things apocalyptic literature does, is it gives us, it unveils and opens up heaven's perspective on the things of earth, as well as the perspective of where things are going in history, both the perspective vertically and horizontally, knowing how God sees things and where things are going in history. We need this, we need this perspective like when we're at the airport. Now, in chapter 4, we saw that God is sovereign, and his sovereignty and his worship is experienced and recognized in heaven as it rightfully deserves. And therefore, this is the reality, chapter 4 presents us with the reality of God's sovereignty and worship recognized, the reality that must eventually prevail on earth. There's sort of this assumption that if this is how God is to be recognized with full sovereignty and full worship, there must come a day where God executes and realizes that full sovereignty and worship on earth. As Jesus taught us to pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. But the question is, how will that happen? And if chapter 4 presents us with the reality that is at the center of the universe, chapter 5 answers how that will come to be experienced on earth eventually. And so chapter 4 and 5 really work together. They're one sort of section, one story in two parts. In chapter 4, we see the sovereignty of God. We have this repeated language of throne, his worship. And then in chapter 5, we see how it's come to be actualized in this thing called a scroll. 
In chapter 4, we get God being worthy of worship because of creation. He is the creator. And in chapter 5, we might say he will be worthy of worship because as the one who created the world, he will redeem the world. If chapter 4 is creation, chapter 5 is new creation. And we expect the one who created his world to redeem it. And so notice with me the the overall structure of chapter 4 and 5 is, you might say, broken up and and kind of plotted out by stages of five songs that increase with with drama and escalation. And so in in chapter 4, verse 8, we get a song where, first of all, we have this, the first choir we have here is four living creatures who sing holy, 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 like Isaiah 6. And then in verse 11, we have the 24 elders. They sing, worthy are you, O Lord. We also then have in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, now it is noticed that both the four living creatures and the 24 elders together singing. In verse 12, then not only do we have uh, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, but now myriads, thousands of thousands, uncountable amount of angels, like at Jesus' birth to the shepherds, coming in, and now they are praising. And then finally, in verse 13, it concludes with literally every creature in heaven on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, praising God. So there's this escalation of the worship of God across both chapters. And what I want you to notice is notice, first of all, this use of the word worthy. So look at verse 11, where this, this one, the second to last song that is sung, it says, Worthy is the Lamb. And in chapter 4, we saw that same language used of the worship of God the Father. Chapter 11, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God. And that word worthy is going to show up five times across these chapters. And eventually, here's the key. What is said of God, worthy are you, God. Worthy are you, God, because you've created all things. That same word is going to be then applied to Jesus in chapter 5. Worthy not only is God, but worthy is the Lamb alongside him. And in addition, not only that, but worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Notice this in chapter 5, verse 12. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing the same exact same accolades that were attributed to God the Father in chapter 4 or in verse 13 to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb we've gone now from the the God the Father being praised on the throne and now the lamb is being praised alongside him To him be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The same things that were attributed to God the Father, worthiness, blessing, honor, glory, might, power, are now being attributed to the Lamb, to the Son, and he is being worshipped alongside of God. That is a radical statement, especially within a monotheistic context where there's only one God. Now we see the Lamb worshipped alongside God. This is a testimony to the deity of Christ That although God the Son, in in some way we can say he's distinct from the Father, nonetheless there there is a jointness and they share the worship. The very things that are the prerogative of God alone to receive worship is given to the Son, who also is God. And so the question I want to ask today is, how did we get from point A to point B? 
How did we get from point A, chapter 4, where God is giving worship and God alone is worthy of worship, to now at the end of 5, we see the Lamb is being given this worship? Look at me in chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on a throne, on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now this scroll, as we'll come to see throughout the rest of the book, specifically chapter 6 with the, the scroll, the judgments of the seals that break open the scroll, we'll find that the scroll... The contents of this scroll are history's destiny. This scroll reveals the course that history is taking, specifically the course that God has planned for it in restoration and judgment. In other words, the, 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 the end goal of this scroll is chapters 21 and 22 with the new creation. So you can think of it this way. The scroll here is an image of God's plans for history, for his creation, as if he had written them down on a scroll. Here are my plans in a scroll. And then the breaking of the seals, eventually we get in chapter 6, is the revealing of the scroll. It's the opening. You break the seals in order to open up the scroll. So you're revealing those plans. And with revealing those plans, the idea seems to be not only making it known, but whoever opens the scroll has the power to execute those plans. And so a scroll would have been something that you would seal, like a seal would have been something where you dip it in wax and you seal the scroll. And so it's sealed seven times. And the idea here is that the scroll with its seals needs specific authorization if you're going to open it. It's not anybody who can open the scroll but the seal is imprinted with, with a specific idea that, that there is only one sort of person that can open this scroll. So, for example, if you were to receive a, a, a letter, for example, in the mail, sometimes you get these letters that we, we moved into our house, I don't know, three years ago or something like that, three and a half years ago. And sometimes you get letters that say, to so-and-so or the current resident. Clearly not an important letter. Okay, they wouldn't be saying to whoever's here, right? Sometimes you get letters on the other end of the spectrum where it maybe goes out of its way to say only this person can open it, only to the person addressed, no one else. You don't open that letter unless it's you. That's the nature of the scroll. We need authorization to see this thing opened. And so what do we see then in verse 2? And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who then is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This word worthy is a word that we see elsewhere in Scripture occasionally. Um, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about how we're supposed to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy way. Or in Ephesians 4, it talks about living worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This word worthy really means um, something along the idea of appropriate to. It, it, it fits. It makes sense. They cohere. So recently, it's a, Dan is watching the kids, so he's not here to hear this. Um, but recently, Dan um, and I were at a, a get-together with a bunch of pastors. And... 
um, they gave away these prize or these like gifts, these door gifts, like when you walk in. And if you know anything about a lot of pastors, a lot of pastors are, are kind of like um, a little bit like nerdy and into studies and kind of more refined things at times. Um, and so, so the gifts that they gave us in this particular instance were a money clip and uh, dress socks um, that had the organization's logo on them. And, and then a fountain pen, okay? Fountain pens are the really fancy type of pen that you have to use as gravity. They're kind of messy, but you, they're really nice, okay? I use fountain pens, I like fountain pens, okay? Now, so Dan gets this gift, and we go into the session, and he knows I use fountain pens, so he, he wants to use a, the fountain pen to take notes. Um, if you know anything about Dan, Dan is not exactly like the sort of pastors I just described. Dan is the guy who does softball videos on YouTube. Um, and so Dan, he decides, I want to get this fountain pen out and take notes. And he knows I know what I'm doing with it, so he hands it to me, and I get it set up, and you got to put the ink cartridge in, and it's this whole thing. Anyway, so he, he couldn't figure it out. So I give it to him, and I say, okay, here it goes. It will start working in a little bit once gravity has its way. And we're, I'm taking notes, and I'm listening to the speaker, and everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, I hear crunch. And I look over. And Dan has somehow managed to break the fountain pen, and it snapped in half. And I look over, and he's got like ink on his hands because they're kind of messy, especially if you break it open. And I'm like, Dan, what on earth? And he's and all of a sudden he's like he's like trying to figure out what just happened, and he's kind of like moving his hands, and he's there's like ink smeared all over him. <laughs> I leaned over to him and I said, you know that book, if you give a mouse a cookie. I said, if you give Dan a fountain pen, <laughs> he had been using it for probably like one minute and managed to break it. Okay, so Dan is not worthy of the fountain pen. <laughs> Dan is not exactly, that's not, a, that's not a fitting gift for Dan. Give Dan a, a softball gloves or something, right? But this is the idea. Who's worthy? Where, where, where would it fit to find someone? where it makes sense, this is the person. This is the person who's qualified to open the scroll. The person who's capable of carrying out God's purposes of redemption. Where who they are and what they have done matches exactly what God has planned in this scroll. Well, we get our answer, so we think, in verse 3 and 4. And he says this, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John wants to take us through this, this experience with him of weeping. Why is John weeping? Let us, let us think about this. Let us sit in this reality. After this sermon is done, we're going to sing a song of response, uh, a song, Is He Worthy, that we sing sometimes. It's songs where the, the words are taken right out of this chapter, you'll notice. And in the, core, in the verses to that song, it says this. It says, Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. And do you wish that you could see it all made new? Well, too bad. Sorry. There's no one able to open the scroll. 
That's how the song would end if we were left hanging right here. And John feels that reality. He senses, he understands what the scroll represents. He understands the meaning of this vision at, the point, at this point. No one would be able to carry out God's purposes of redemption. That scroll is sealed. The purpose is stuck. It's left there. Consider what that would mean for us, church. If the resurrection wasn't true, if the cross of Christ had not happened, to be left under the weight of our sin, all the, broken, all the brokenness you know, all the shame that you, that you feel when your sin is exposed and you actually stare it in the face, all the consequences of our sin that we get ourselves into, the mess we make of ourselves, left for us merely to weep that that is the reality. That's the permanent condition. But not only that, but may I say the even greater condition of of us being left in our condemnation before a holy God, consigned to the destiny that is hell, that is rightfully, that would rightfully be ours. And that's that's our fate. If we truly understood what this would mean, we would weep with John. But praise God, that is not the end of the narrative. So look at me with verse Five, where then he says, And one of the elders, though, he said to, to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This, this language of the lion of Judah, it comes from Genesis 49, where, where the promise that is made to the tribe of Judah is that there would be one from Judah's line who would reign the scepter will not depart. The, 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 the rod of the ruler will not depart. And Judah then is called a lion in this way. This is this language of kind of the fierce, the king of the jungle, you know, this, this fierce animal. Strength is, is conveyed by the idea of lion. Or this idea of the root of David, David's root, because eventually from that line of that tribe of Judah, there would come David himself, the appointed king that God selected. It's from your lineage that my ultimate Messiah, my ultimate ruler will come. And so it's describing Christ here as the root of David from Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 10, that he's from David's line, that that lion-like ruler. And it said that he conquered. And if you've listened to our sermons or our podcast where we've talked about that language of conquering, it's this victory language, oftentimes used in military settings. This is militaristic type language, in other words. This is, this is warrior language. This is the warrior king, a lion, the root of David, David, the mighty warrior of God who conquers military, pushing back the forces of darkness, coming in and defeating evil, like God in the Exodus with his strong hand, judging the nation, judging the gods of Egypt. And this is one who has now conquered and defeated the forces of darkness so that God's purposes of redemption in his kingdom can, in fact, come in. But what we get surprisingly, then, in verse 6 is this. That's what he hears. He hears that there's a lion of Judah. He hears the military warrior king. But oftentimes in the book of Revelation, we get these flips of what is heard and then what is seen. 
or what appears to be the case, but what is actually the case, spiritually speaking. And we get that in verse 6. Because then between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What he hears is a military picture. What he sees is a slain lamb. In other words, the idea is this. Christ conquers as the lion by being a slain lamb. And that is how he conquers. So you'll notice in in verse 5 it says that he's conquered so that, purpose here, so that he can open the scroll. And as it says in verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for, this is the reason you are worthy to open the scroll, because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. The paradox here is that Christ conquers by being conquered. He conquers by himself being killed. Rather than the military warrior who slays his enemy, he dies for his enemy, killed by his enemy for his enemy. And this we see in the book of Revelation becomes the model of the believer as we too are called to conquer, falling the lamb wherever he goes, not fighting our enemies with force, but by subjecting ourselves even to the oppression and remaining faithful unto death if it is called upon us. And why has the lion conquered as being a lamb? Because we know that throughout the Bible, we see that the establishment of God's kingdom always involves not merely the conquest of evil, not merely the destruction and the pushing back of evil, so that the world has fallen and it's fallen into the kingdom of darkness, and for God to reinstate his, his kingdom of light, he could just absolutely obliterate the evil and push it right in. But if that were the case, we would be destroyed along with the evil. Because we ourselves are evil. We are a part of the evil that would be destroyed. But God's purpose of reestablishing his kingdom is not merely to destroy the evil, but to take the evildoer, to take the rebel, and make them into a rightful citizen of the kingdom. His plan involves rescuing those who are evil. It always involves, in other words, atonement. And we see this all throughout scripture. We see this, that since the fall, the way back to the kingdom, the way back to the garden, is not to just go right back into the Garden of Eden, but it's to head to God's kingdom through atonement. God's kingdom is always involved atonement. And so you think of the Exodus, the sort of the classic paradigm of God bringing his people into his kingdom, eventually leading them into the land where they experience a sort of partial uh, form of the kingdom. As he brought about the plagues, as he conquested, and as he, as he conquered Egypt, it was through the atonement of the Passover lamb. And then as he brought his people into the land of the promise, he gave them a sacrificial system to deal with their sin so that they could actually be as sinners in a right relationship with him in his kingdom. And this is what John is getting at here. He talks about the lamb, the one who conquers as the lion, as someone who is slain. Same language that is used in the Passover uh, chapter in Scripture. He's slain by your blood. It is by his death 
that he ransoms. Look at verse 9. Worthy are you to, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed. There's a buying here. Buying people out of the slavery of Egypt is the language. Buying us into a people for God. And there's Exodus themes sort of swirling around this passage. We get, we get the language later of a kingdom of priests, which comes from Exodus 9. We get the language of, of a new song, which is the, the song of deliverance that Moses led the people of Egypt in when they went through the Red Sea. They sang a new song in Exodus 15. And so most likely here, I think lamb, although it could be reflective of any sacrifice, I think most appropriate here is probably the Passover sacrifice of the Exodus. And if you know what happened in the Passover, as God brings about his people into his kingdom, he's issuing judgments that will, that will clear out the evil and bring his people into his kingdom. We, we learn in the Passover meal that if it wasn't for God's atonement that he provides, we too would be subjected to that evil or that, that punishment because we are evil. And so what does God do? He God, God gives them the Passover lamb. He has them put blood over the doorpost so that as the angel comes and he, and he kills the firstborn, that blood makes atonement and God's judgment passes over those who had the lamb sacrificed. And Christ is that Passover lamb for us, in other words. That as God's judgment would be issued upon us because of our sin, for all those who place their faith in Christ, Christ serves as the Passover lamb for us. So that when I am in Jesus, that judgment has been poured out in Jesus on the cross, so that God's judgment then passes over me, and I am forgiven. And Jesus here stands as the resurrected lamb, the one who is not only slain, but now he's the lamb as, as though he had been slain, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, risen and victorious king. He stands in, the, in heaven's throne room and he grabs the scroll. Right now, at the very center of this universe, everything that has ever existed and will ever exist the very center of all things, stands a lamb. And that lamb has grabbed the scroll. Jesus has accomplished God's purpose of restoration. And central to that purpose is a redeeming a people for himself, dying on the sin cross for our sins, taking the penalty that we deserve so that all who put their faith in him can be forgiven and have God's judgment passed over them. And so Jesus now has the scroll. The destiny of history, the restoration of creation is now realized in principle in Jesus. The victory has been won. It is just yet to be applied. You might think of it this way, that, that if you're coming up on graduation, if there's a student in here, for example, who's coming up on graduation in the spring, eventually there comes a point where you have finished all your coursework, you finished your capstone, you finished your thesis, whatever is required for your degree, it's all done. You'll have it all completed. And yet, you won't necessarily yet have your, your graduation certificate or diploma. You won't necessarily have walked across the stage yet. But in principle, you're basically already graduated. It's done. It's just a matter of it playing itself out. 
Or if you're into sports, there comes a time at the end of a football game where there's just a little bit of time left on the clock, but the game is basically done. And so the offensive team gets into their victory stance, which means that the quarterback just kneels to take the time out of the clock. That's where we are in history at this point. Christ already has the scroll. The very end of history, the very purposes of God's recreation are in his hand, unveiled, ready to be executed. It's just a matter of them working their way out. In the cross of Christ, Jesus died taking the penalty for our sin. And that means that that final end time judgment that we still await in Jesus has already occurred. Jesus has already experienced the final end time judgment in himself so that all those in him have already received that end time verdict of justification. When Jesus rises from the dead, he embarks into the new creation. He is now into a new era of existence and all those in Jesus are new creation with him. And Jesus, when he is, a, he is resurrected from the dead, God appoints him king and he appoints him judge so that Jesus already has authority to judge the nations as he will. The rest of the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 22, in other words, is contained in principle here in chapter 5. The rest of the book is just the outworking of chapter 5. And so the point of this passage is that Christ is worthy because he has conquered by means of his sacrificial death and resurrection. He has won the securing of God's new creation of God's final judgment, and the arrival of God's kingdom. The very scroll of God is in his hand. And so as we think about the book of Revelation, we've, sub, we've titled it Reality Unveiled, Empowered for Patient Endurance. The book will give us these portraits of reality. It's going to unveil reality. We get a glimpse into heaven. We see a lamb who has the, the scroll. That's reality unveiled. The question then is how does that empower us for, for patient endurance? How do we respond to this absolutely glorious reality that the God of the universe who created all things became a human being to die as a lamb for us? First of all, if you are not a believer here today, Christ has the scroll. By Jesus' resurrection, he has been appointed judge, as the book of Acts says. But not only has God appointed him judge, there is no name under heaven by which God has given us for us to be saved, as it says in Acts 4, verse 12. And so the question for you today is how will you experience Jesus? Will you experience him as the appointed judge who executes the judgments that we see across the rest of the book of Revelation? Or will you experience him as God's appointed Savior in whom to find refuge? Jesus' sacrificial death is presented to us here. Jesus as the lamb, that the judgment of God that is due to you, that is due to me, that is due to all of us, that is our need before God. That judgment then is passed over all those who are in Jesus. All those who enter the household, so to say, with Jesus as the blood on the doorpost and God's judgment will pass over you. If by faith you enter Christ, he is your Passover lamb. And God's judgment is then spared on you. Second of all, I think this passage is a challenge to us. That as we think about how this text would land on the seven churches that we just, we just went through, there were many of those churches that were complicit in things like sexual immorality, going after idolatry, succumbing to false teaching, pursuing wealth, 
complacent in their spiritual walks, wayward or compromised, whatever. I think getting a grip of this reality, letting this this vision of Christ enthroned just get etched into your imagination and your memory, that is a rebuke and that is a challenge to that sort of life. This is the God that we serve. Let all those things fall away. This is the Christ who will judge the wayward. But then for the churches that are, that are being faithful, or those in the churches that are faithful, this can be a comfort. It can be an encouragement. It can empower us for patient endurance. Because as we see Christ's authority, for those churches that would, you know, maybe they're experiencing poverty or marginalization or persecution, what have you, as they are able to then look into the heavens and see Christ, they can say, it's worth it. His purposes are going to be brought about. I'm going to hold fast to him no matter what I experience in this life. Let my eyes be locked on him. Let that fuel my faithfulness and my endurance. Fourthly, I think it causes us to worship. In chapters 4 and 5, we see that one of the dominant themes is worship. And this theme reflects the response that I think we are to have as those who are redeemed. As those who experience the redemption of chapter 5, we are to respond in the way that chapter 5 models. Worship. We see in chapter 4 that God is doubly deserving of our worship, not only as the one who created us. You'll notice it says, worthy are you, O God, for you created all things. So on the one hand, we worship God simply because he's the creator, but now not only so, but we worship him also because he is the redeemer. As chapter 5 says, we sing a new song. This language of new song, as I said in the Old Testament, is always accompanying God's acts of redemption. We sing him as the creator and the redeemer. And the book of Revelation, in many ways, unfolds to us a battle over worship. It introduces the subject of worship here in chapter 4 and 5. And as we go through the book, we'll see that you could summarize the book of Revelation as a battle over the question, who are we going to worship? And this is really the whole story of the Bible. This is a story of the world. The question of who we will worship from, from fall to redemption. We were created to worship God alone. But Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sinned, That was effectively not honoring God as God. It was to not worship God as he ought. And ever since that moment, our hearts, as Calvin would say, are idol-making factories. We are just producing things to worship that are not God. And we see this with Israel, always going after the idols around them, other places to find security and peace. But also what we see in the Old Testament is we see a God who is dead set on pursuing his people in order to reorder them as worshipers of him. And Revelation picks up this battle for our worship. It depicts the believers as those who are restored worshipers, of those who have their allegiance realigned to the true God. As one commentator says, talking about chapters 4 and 5, he says, the history of the universe from creation, chapter 4, to consummation, chapter 5, finds its significance in worship. All of history can be summarized as worship, which means that Easter is about God reestablishing his worship. And this worship is not just, as we might think about it, just like praising God. Worship, according to the book of Revelation, is really a matter of loyalty and where our allegiance is. 
And so the book of Revelation depicts worship as abstaining from the idolatries and the pressures of society, whether that be the beast, that is the state with its military power and and the government at that point, or the harlot, the economic system, exploitation, the pursuit of wealth, or the world's false messaging and deception, the false prophet. Whatever the case, God, the lamb with the scroll, demands our worship. And finally, I think it motivates us to mission, the fifth response. As John Piper says, he says, missions exists because worship doesn't. If we truly understand that the book is about worship, we'll also understand that the book is about missions. Because missions is the spreading of God's fame to make more and more people properly as they were created to be worshipers and enjoyers of God. To spread that worship to the ends of the world. And so we see in this book that we are not only redeemed to worship God, but then we are redeemed for the vocation of seeing others brought into that community. Just like in the Exodus, not only did God save the people of Israel, but he saved them to bring them to the mountain so that they would serve him, to bring them into the land so they would serve him there as well. As we see in verse 9 and 10, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and nation and people, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. This language that comes out of Exodus 19, where God had appointed Israel to be a a nation of priests, a priestly nation, a royal priesthood, that by their peculiarity they they would reflect God, they would image God to the nations around them, that they would be a witness people. And 1 Peter talks about this as well, that the church as a royal priesthood is to be a missionary people, that we are to proclaim the excellencies of this Lamb. We are saved not only to be forgiven, but to be on vocation, to be on a mission. And we see in this passage that Christ has the authority for this mission. As the one who has the scroll, just as Jesus said in Matthew 28, closing out that gospel, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. The authority of Christ over the nations, having bought a people for himself, spurs us on to mission. And I think one of the reasons that sometimes we fail to evangelize is because we fail to believe that Christ actually has the authority to save. This victory has been won by Christ, and this victory is nothing short than the redemption of a particular people. From every tribe and language and people and nation, Easter is about mission. As Tim Chester puts it, he says this, Mission is the meaning of the cross. Christ died so that there might be people from every people group among his people. Mission to the ends of the earth, then, is the outworking of the cross. Christ purchase specific people from every nation, and so they now belong to him. Our job is to gather them in. If we're content to leave unreached people unreached, then we've missed the point of the atonement. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, if you haven't grabbed elements yet, they're out in the foyer. The Lord's Supper is, as I like to say, a pictured promise of the gospel. The bread and the wine depict Christ's body 
and his blood given for us in his death, and they are backed with the very promises of God. And as we have reflected today on this passage and we think about our response to this passage in worship and in mission and in comfort and in challenge and belief, it's all because of who Jesus is in the gospel, the one who's presented as the lamb, the very Passover lamb. And on Thursday, uh, that's when they would have uh, observed, according to Holy Week, kind of our tradition, Thursday would have been the day that Jesus gathered as the Last Supper with his disciples. And if you remember, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he is, in effect, they were observing the Passover meal. He is, in effect, transforming the meaning of the Passover meal to make it center on himself and what he's about to do on the cross. He is telling us, church, that the very lamb, the very redemption that you celebrated in the Passover meal, God redeeming his people out of Egypt by, by offering an atonement for them where God's judgment would pass over them, he is saying, what I'm about to do on the cross, this cup that I'm about to drink, this cup of God's wrath, I am that Passover lamb. That would have been revolutionary for those disciples who grew up celebrating the Passover, remembering God's great act of redemption in the Exodus. And now Jesus is saying, that great act of redemption, you thought that was great? This is the real deal. This is my body. This is my blood.